Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson. And today I am so excited because I get to speak to an old colleague, someone who is so funny and so talented. Um, so Dr. Becky Schmidt. I love that there's a doctor no, now. No doctor. I'm not a doctor. Oh, it's, <laughs> I, this is, it's so funny. It said this on your, on the bio that I found on you, you but know what? I think it does that for other, other, everybody. Now, I don't know if it's because there's a doctorate of the, you know, most people are coming out with doctorates now. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's why or not, but no, I was lucky enough to sneak in at a master's <laughs> and not have an extra year of school. <laughs> <laughs> So Becky Schmidt, she's a certified registered nurse anesthetist. She has a longstanding history of working in critical care. And we're going to talk to Becky and find out how she's doing, how COVID is affecting her life and what that's like over in Wisconsin. I feel like it's bad over there. Um, Yes. Yeah. And we'll find out a little bit about her transition from ICU nursing to CRNA and whatever else comes up. But yeah. before we get into that, how are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. Yes. Um, settling in for the winter here in Wisconsin. So far, we've been lucky, I would say. It's still been, we don't have any snow as of yet. And it's still been, it was almost 50 degrees yesterday. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Normally, so that's <laughs> is, is it normally just like, I mean, is it just a winter wonderland in the, in the winter. Yeah. I mean, winter can really start anytime in October. So like if it, you know, if we get a lot of snow early in the season and a lot of cold temperatures early, it makes for a very long winter. So I always hold out hope that it's not going to be bad until like Christmas time. That way we only got like two months till we're around in the corner. (laughs) And is it just like, I mean, cause you know, we, we get snow here, but it's like not, not really snow Yeah. But there. You get serious snow, right? Like feet of snow and um, we can. Yeah. I think every winter, you know, I, to me, I don't think most winters we get as much snow as I remember having as a kid. Like I remember the banks being like, you know, as tall as the swing sets and like around the schoolyard from plowing and Wow. you know, interestingly, the first year I moved back here, um, after being in Pittsburgh, um, 
that February, we got about 12 inches of snow every week in February. Like it was, people <laughs> didn't even have places to, weren't, like that is more than we're used to. Like there was nowhere to put it even. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that was my welcome home. <laughs> Holy cow. Holy shit. Um, so how, how is uh, COVID affecting you and, and your world over there? Are you in like, what's, what's the city that you're in right now? I'm in pretty much right in the middle of the state. So we're about two hours straight North Madison, uh, like two and a half hours East of Minneapolis. We're kind of like right in the middle of the state. Okay. Um, COVID has been, so we were, you know, one of those states that, you know, um, you know, Washington got hit so early on and then everybody like braced for everything and listened and we really did it, you know, cause even in spring, you know, because so much was unknown, like we shut our ORs down, we were only doing emergent cases and preparing and then that didn't happen. So then, you know, later in summer and throughout the summer things just kept getting worse. And then I think it got to a point, um, you know, people just don't even want to listen anymore. You know, the numbers are still, I think, you know, for not a very big, you know, Madison, Milwaukee are our biggest like areas. And, you know, we're still, the numbers are still like 3000 a day. Uh, so there's a lot of cases every day yet. <clears throat> and the county we have, so at my hospital specifically, so I work at a very small hospital now, right oh, at wow. the moment we're only um, like 60 beds. We do not have, there is no um, ICU physician in-house at night. They <laughs> work by like Caladoc. And so I should back up and say, you know, we were part, so I worked for a hospital system that's like more, uh, previously was, you know, more like a national hospital organization. And then we were bought out by a more regional local hospital system. So like there's things that are changing. Um, but we had, they just, um, you know, we have fl a floor that's like not even open because they don't have staff for it, et cetera. It's hard. It's hard to get people to move to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it's very yeah. hard to recruit up here. Um, so at the moment, um, for instance, like last night, you know, I had to go put in an arterial line last night, like that was in the ICU on a COVID positive patient. Like that's, we, we kind of cover between them and our uh, physician anesthesiologist, like we kind of provide coverage for the ICU oh, at wow. night as far as lines and intubations um, and stuff. It don't, we, they don't need us too often because so since I guess what I've heard from other people is that because there is no uh, you know, physician in house at night, which like, I can't imagine, like, cause when I have to go there, like, it looks like a war zone in the ICUs right now. You know, it's like, there's just carts lining the hallways, you know, there's respiratory therapy, you know, it's just like, it's like every patient is, you know, they have to have carts outside and lines and Archie and stuff. So it just is, it just is crazy looking to me. And I just can't imagine, like, I remember taking care of how sick, those kind of sick patients, you know, mm -hmm. RC type patients. And I mean, you need like a whole team of people just to take care of one of them and, you mm -hmm. know, to have five, 10 of them. So what I think has been happening is if they, when they're able to, 
because you know we're part of a larger hospital system that they send those patients that they think are getting sicker to one of the other hospitals um, where they have more people to help manage them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, as far as us, you know, I feel extremely lucky that because you know I we I am primarily in the OR. Um, we're only doing like urgent ish cases. Um, and, you know, occasionally we have some COVID positive patients. We, we test everybody, you know, we treat everybody like they could be positive, but, um, you know, for the most part, I feel pretty lucky compared to like, I can't, I just like, can't even fathom being a floor nurse right now. Like when I walk out there, I'm just like, I don't, I'm like, I think I would go and see, <laughs> you know, it's like, you're, I think when you are, when you do it, you know, you have this, like, uh, the, just the, like, get it done mentality, you know, like, mm-hmm. you're just always, you have to get it done. That's your job. Right. And it's like, now, now I'm like, feel so removed from that, where I'm like, like, wow, I just like, can't even imagine being here walking around with like, I mean, I wear an N95 all day, every day too, but I'm not like gowning up and going in patient rooms and 24 you know, hours a day or all of your yeah. full, full shift. Yeah. That is so scary to me. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, I guess what I'm referring to is those sick, those sick patients on the, in the ICU with, um, those poor nurses, man, they don't have enough support. No, no. Um, yeah. And we, we were pretty, so our ICU was pretty small. And like, I think the, I don't, I think the, their COVID floor is kind of like in the front part of the hallway, I should say, kind of, um, Mm -hmm. from the ICU, but, um, yeah, you know, like I said, luckily I really don't have to go out there like that, you know, we once in a while, cause I mean the ER during the day, there's people who can intubate, intubate and the ER physicians will come up and help intubate if they can. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the times we get called to do it are, are pretty rare and, um, it just depends, you know, and it's, but it's just so interesting. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like so removed from it. Cause even the patient, you know, the patients we have had to do surgery on that are COVID positive. I feel like half the time it's like an incidental finding, you know, it's like a 24 year old who walked in the door with abdominal pain and needs an appy and he happens to have COVID cause we tested them. Mm-hmm. So they're not, um, you know, so they're not ill because of COVID usually the ones I've taken care of. Mm what do you re- okay I'm assuming that you've had to intubate COVID positive patients right yeah. um that maybe are symptomatic mm-hmm. what what was that like the first time were you scared um, I don't I think it was mostly it was awkward. So I don't know if you guys saw this at the beginning with the intubations, they were coming up with all these like boxes to go over like beds and Mm -hmm. trying to cover up the patients, um, to kind of prevent the aerosolization of, you know, when you're intubating. Um, so that made it really awkward. And our, so, I mean, I mean, you know, that like normally you're, you have for as far as tools, you have like a regular like blade you can intubate with. And then most places now have some type of video. Oh yeah. Glidescope. Like oh, glidescope. Okay. And we have something called, it's called a King airway. So it it's all on one handle. So it happens to be longer, like with the glidescope, 
you have your handle, but then your video is off to the side, you know, it's the handles mm -hmm. in your hand. And so you hit your handle that you're actually intubating with is still pretty small, but ours is all in one. So it's like a foot long. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to get under those boxes or a bag or something, it was like, you couldn't see what you were doing and your video screen is underneath there. Oh. So it was just really awkward. Um, and I think, and a lot of us ended up, it just wasn't working out. And, you know, we have, and then at the beginning too, there was the whole, like, do we have enough PP for everybody and stuff like that? I don't know if I felt worse about it than intubating, you know, other people with like um, <laughs> other really bad respiratory illnesses. Mm -hmm. Cause I mean, mm -hmm. we were we're covered. We're not, you know, and the nice thing about when you bring patients to the OR compared to like when you're coding a patient, is it such a controlled environment? Like you feel like, you know, you, you can sit there and oxygenate them for five minutes if you need to. Yeah. Um, you know, you're just, everything is where you need it. There's not 20 people in the room and stuff like that. So I think it, you know, I think there at the beginning, there was just this overall sense of like, what's going on with, you know, this virus, because there was so much unknown about it at the beginning. And as time went on, you know, it's kind of like, well, we have, you know, we have all this, you know, PPE and procedures in place. And, um, you know, if we get called to the ICU to intubate, we wear, we do wear PAPRs usually. Mm -hmm. um, but in the OR, we just wear, like, we wear the shields and an N95 with a mask over it and a gown. Um, and in our ORs, we, if we have to bring a COVID positive, cause we just use our regular rooms. Um, nobody can open the doors for 20 minutes after you intubate or after you extubate um, okay. just cause of the air exchange time. So other than that, you know, it's been over, overall, it's always just a little, you know, I had to give a tour to somebody working, coming from the day surgery hospital of our system the other day and she was like oh my god COVID positive patient and they have you know it's it we're just kind of getting used to it where it's yeah. like part of our and now we're running into this which I guess I don't know what to think about it because I think it's a little have you come across like people so they were they had COVID maybe a month or two ago but now like so we're testing all our surgical patients and so some of them, when they're getting tested, are still coming back positive because they had COVID like a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. And then they tell us that that is not infectious. But like how, I mean, I guess I that's like the one thing I do feel a little like, well, but then why are they still, you know, it must still be in them somewhere if they're testing positive. Like, so I always feel a little like that's kind of weird to me. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have seen that um, come across that. And what that looks like, um, I guess when you take the sample, the PCR, this, uh, and you run it, if it has a shows up at a certain cycle time, I don't know. It, it depends on the, the amount of the virus. I guess it's like, um, but it's the epidemiologists or infection control people yeah. deem that, that it's not, um, viable anymore. It's not infectious anymore. So like, yeah. it's, um, I should read about that, but like there it's is just a, so a bar. Yeah. It's weird. Cause then when you like, look at their labs, it still resulted as positive. So like, unless you know their whole history, which 
you know, sometimes, you know, we don't always, you know, depending like, you know, our, our physicians do like the pre-ops and stuff and they're pretty good about let it, letting us know that stuff. But if you're just looking up your patient before surgery and you're like, oh, okay, this patient's positive. And then they're like, and I think the what I'm hearing is they're not even supposed to be testing them if they had it, you know, within the last couple months, because they know it potentially will just come back as positive. Hmm. I'm just like, that's so, I'm like, that's just such a weird concept to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had somebody who was positive and then was taken out of precautions because he was deemed mm-hmm. that he was not infectious anymore, but I'll tell you what, I mean, it made all of us nervous to go in yeah. there because it's like, well, yeah. are you positive or not positive? I think that's interesting that they won't or they're contemplating not testing folks because you can get it again right I don't know if it's just over a certain time period like if it's within two months or three you know because they right now what are they still saying like three months they think you have like immunity for oh yeah yeah Yeah. so I don't know if it's after you know we're we aren't seeing enough people that have had it and then that much time has gone by so like Mm. This person, the most, this most recent person I had this with had, you know, had it in October. So like a month and a half even. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just like based on from when they had it, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely an kind of crazy time to be in healthcare anywhere. It's just, you know, it's nothing, you know, and then we have all like nurses are getting put in the hospital that work normally work in like a surgery center and like, and everybody, everybody is like unhappy because they're like, I didn't sign up for this. You know? <laughs> like, if I wanted to take care of these sick ass patients, I would have totally in the hospital. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, luck, you know, luck, luckily, you know, we, um, you know, we are, cause we, uh, so at our hospital, you know, we manage, we still have enough surgeries to keep us busy most days. And we actually have, um, every day of one of the CRNAs takes like COVID call. So you're on call from like 3 PM to 7 AM. And that's just for like the, I, you know, like I had to go in last night and do an A-line and out of, this is my fourth COVID sh- call shift. And that's the first time I've had to go in. Mm. So that's not, that's not too bad. Are you doing nights now or how does how- No, no, that's just our call. Just so call. where I work. Yeah, we have, um, we, I mean, we have like, you know, we have eight ORs. Um, we have like a, you know, EP lab, cath lab that we do. Um, and then the CRNAs are the ones who primarily cover OB. So, I mean, we get, and what, so like the call person, we take call and it's, you know, whatever, maybe three times a month or something like that. How many epidurals are you placing on pregnant people? It, it varies. We are, our numbers are down in OB this year. Everybody was like, every, I always thought it was funny because at the beginning of this, they're like, oh, come January, February, there's going to be so many babies from all this COVID. I'm like, but is there really, like, if you were really stuck home with like your significant <laughs> other every day? <laughs> <laughs> So well, we will see. Um, and like I said, because we've um, our hospital system has switched a little bit and stuff like that. But I mean, it can it can be really busy. It's um, it can be it can be something sometimes. I mean, I've done. It's not as bad as so. I I went to school in Pittsburgh, as you may or may not remember. But 
I, the place I did my training there um, was a women's hospital and there they did 11,000 births a year. <laughs> so it's nothing oh like that. <laughs> You're like, you get an epidural, you get yeah. an epidural. I had eight hour shifts where I put in five epidurals and that, and that was just me. There was other residents and CRNAs there too. So, I mean, I wasn't the only one doing them usually. I mean, there could be 20 a night sometimes. Wow. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your decision to become a CRNA and kind of like your trajectory, like as an ICU nurse to, to CRNA and kind of what do you, what do you, how do you feel about being a CRNA now? I love it. It's, I would say it's like a big change. Um, I, it really is like a pretty great job. Like you, you kind of get the best of everything, right? You get to like go, you know, you, for the most part, you just make people like feel good. You don't, <laughs> you just put them to sleep. They do surgery, you take care of their pain. Um, so that, you know, it can, I always, um, it, you know, on rare occasion, it can be really intense. Um, I always thought like in anesthesia, I think I learned this in anesthesia school, but somebody, I don't even know who it was. There's a saying that says, so anesthesia is 99% boredom and 1% shit your pants. And that's totally true. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that totally gave me goosebumps. <laughs> well, cause like if ever, you know, and I mean, like I talked about before, you know, it's like such a controlled environment most time. And of course anything can happen. Um, you know, but for the most part, you got all your tools and your drugs and everything's right there. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you, you know, do your job well, like it's like smooth sailing and wake them up or, you know, you get, they get their epidural and they have a baby later and yeah. Um, so that, it, as far as that goes, I love that part of it. Cause you know, as, as you know, like the ICU can be really just intense with like families and the dynamics with families and you know it can be really I think I, I don't even think you re like I personally realize like how like mentally draining it is till I wasn't in it anymore you know wow. like, it probably even took me a little like while out of school because when you're in school of course that's like even more mentally draining <laughs> right? yeah <laughs> um but I think, yeah, I mean, I like think, I think about this, but especially, especially where we work together, like there was some awfully special <laughs> people that came through on occasion, but I mean, that's just a nice change of pace. It's just, um, it's more relaxed. Like I feel just like more of a relaxed person, I guess. Like you're not always, I don't always feel so like, go, 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 like all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I enjoy that. Um, as far as, so what made me want to become a CRNA? Um, I think it was always something um, I've been interested in since I started nursing. I did like a summer internship in the like pre-op, post-op surgery area, like prior to graduating. So that I think is where I first learned about that a CRNA even was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and was always interested in it. Um, and I, you know, it was always on my radar. I just like, I guess I'm not so much one of those people. I like, I'm like, this is my goal and I'm going to work towards it every day until it happens. I was mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, 
I'm gonna like finish school and live life because I actually did a two-year degree was my first nursing degree okay so then you know I then I um my first job was actually at Mayo Clinic and then I finished my BSN while I worked there and then I moved out to Seattle and was there until I left for grad school so it was always something I wanted to do. And I, you know, I always, um, I actually had wanted to move out to Seattle when I finished my first degree and it just didn't work out timing wise. Um, so like when I had the opportunity, I did it. And living life will always be more important to me than any job. <laughs> that is amazing. I feel like you need to say that again. <laughs> live your life people live your life yeah right you you yeah nobody on their tombstone says i wish i worked more yeah no never and i you know when once i was out there and it was just you know after i i mean i loved my job out there and i loved everybody i worked with and then i turned around one day and was like i'm like 36 years old <laughs> <laughs> So I, I just, I always, I guess my goal for grad school, no matter what I was going to do was if I was going to go back for grad school, I, I wanted to do it before I was 40. So, um, and once I started looking into CRNA schools and realizing just how demanding even applying is, um, you know, every single school, you have to fill out an application, you pay money, you have to write an essay. Um, and you don't, you don't even know what's going to happen. And most time I interviewed at four schools and I think most of them gave me less than like two weeks notice to come to do an interview. And you had to Basically. fly out, right? Yeah. Pay money to fly out yeah. on your own dime yeah. to interview. And what were those interviews like? Um, I would say they were variable. Um, they often ask you um, like clinical scenarios. Um, some of them were a little bit more like getting to know your personality, um, kind of your history, you know, why you wanted to become a CRNA, things that influenced you. Um, but yeah, they were kind of all over the board. You, you know, I guess they were, they were nerve wracking enough that usually I think when I left them, I didn't, couldn't even tell you what I said. <laughs> like I was just rambling the whole time. Um, yeah. And then you wait months before you even know if you were accepted mm. or not, you know, um, some of them, some of them you just get no call from and, others you know you wait five six months because most most programs especially now that they're moving all mm -hmm. towards uh dnp are only starting once a year they're only starting one class once a year mm -hmm. um so yeah it was it was really demanding and i think once i realized how even that process was i committed myself to giving myself like a year of applying to CRNA schools. And I was like, I, if I don't get in, I'm just going to, you know, I'll, I, this isn't, I, I will, I will be happy if I don't do this too. You know, there's other things I can be happy doing. Um, that was just like my number one choice. And I was willing to put, you know, the time and effort I could into it. But like I said, I was like, oh my God, I'm like 
almost 40 and I wasn't going to do that for like three, four, you know, I just wasn't willing to give up that much more of my life, I guess, to not even know if you're going to get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause you, you know, and, um, I don't know of many CRNA programs where you can work while you're in school. So you have to, you uproot your life, you quit your job, you take on a shit ton of debt and <laughs> so, so there's a lot of things that go in, you know, that you kind of, uh, it's definitely a sacrifice to go. Um, and I, at the time I did, I was, I did look more at, I did look at a couple DMP programs that were on the shorter side. Mm -hmm. Um, but mostly I was, cause you can always get your DNP. Um, but you know, if you, if you start out with your DNP, you're paying more per credit to start oh. with. Um, so your whole program is going to cost more, um, yeah. And they're not cheap. There's a couple, there's like two or three programs in the country that are still like maybe affordable, but most of the rest of them are like, it's like buying a house, you know? Oh shit. Yeah. Total yeah. investment. And did you, did you have any ties at all to Pittsburgh? No. So you just, so you just basically took on like a really intense, I'm, I'm going to say job It's because basically going back yeah. to school became your job. Yeah. And learning, learning all that. Did your partner go with you? Well, he, my ex-partner did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. One of the another lovely parts about CRNA school is <laughs> relationships don't survive. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Damn no, it. but he did go with me there. Yeah. And then how did you decide you wanted to go to this little town in Wisconsin? So this, um, where I'm working now is very close to my hometown. Um, and you know, that was actually really interesting too, because I don't, that that's something I would say I didn't realize prior to starting school was you know, you kind of think you're still in like the realm of the nursing world. And when you're a nurse, you're kind of just like, I want to live here. I want to work in the ICU. Like, that's how you find a job. You know, it's mm -hmm. really that easy. But when it, um, for uh, in anesthesia, it there, the practice can vary so much from hospital to hospital. And, you know, um, you know, when you go, when you go to anesthesia school, you are, you are trained to be an independent practitioner and there is, um, states and places where you can be like the only CRNA provider, you know, you can be one of two CRNAs in the whole hospital sometimes. Uh -huh. Um, they're the only anesthesia providers at a hospital sometimes. So that is what you train for. And, you know, you have, you know, in big academic medical centers, which is, mostly what I have always worked in, you know, it's like, you get these, you get to see these like amazing cases and like you work with like such amazing surgeons and physicians who are like world renowned sometimes. And like, all that's really interesting. But then at the end of the day, like a lot, a lot of, I'm not going to say it all the time, but you know, like you, you don't have a lot of independence within your own practice, you know, like you're, the anesthesiologists are a little more dictating what you can and cannot do, you know, um, which, which is fair, right? They're, they, they're, they're the supervisors and they're signing your chart. Like that's mm -hmm. their case too. I mean, that's just how it works. But I think, 
in more rural areas, there's a little more, you know, I work at right now, we have three anesthesiologists. So I know all of them very well and they know how I do my job. And, you know, if they had a problem with it, I probably wouldn't work. There. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just a little, you know, and, and in big places where you don't know people that well, it's fair that you want to like know what people are doing a little more. Um, if you're putting your name on a chart, like I understand yeah. all that. Um, it's just not, I just don't think it's like, it's not, it didn't seem for me as much, you know, mm -hmm. like where I training in Pittsburgh, like a lot of the hospitals I at were, you know, part of a big hospital system and big medical center and stuff like that. And, and I enjoy doing those big cases, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't know if I feel like you get as much, uh, like balance with your life as oh. you know, you do in, um, you don't usually always take call in bigger hospitals because there's residents and other people mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and so, I mean, that part, you know, does I, does anybody really love call? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray, I'm on call. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it's not, it, overall, it's not, I mean, the trade-off is worth it. You know, like where I work, we're always off our post-call days. And if we work like, a, you know, one of our weekend shifts, if we do Friday, Sunday, Tuesday, then we're off the rest of the week. Cause I have to say like having a Monday through Friday job almost was enough to not make me want to go to anesthesia school. They have, when I worked with you, I worked like 12 hour weekend nights. That was like primarily what I did most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I liked that. Um, I would do it again if they would let me, but we aren't, we don't have enough. <laughs> we're not busy all night long. We don't for the most part. So yeah. Did you ever run into any anesthesiologists? I'm sure you have, because I, I know what this is like if you run into nurses sometimes, but do you ever run into any anesthesiologists that you're like, whoa, I don't know what you're doing, but um, I don't want any part of that. Uh, oh, like as far as maybe they're not- Maybe, maybe they're like sketchy they're or something. Or just that maybe they're not that good at their job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would say probably a little bit of, both not so much on like the I would I would say the ones the one the one that I can think of the most that um I always questioned what he did a little bit was actually a, he was older very intelligent and but there was like just certain things he just wasn't good at but sometimes like he doesn't always know to like maybe ask one of the other anesthesiologists to do that. And you know what I mean? Like an awake intubation. Like I had to do an awake intubation with him one time and it was horrible. I was like, oh my God. And like, I think the CRNA that I, I, this was as a student and the CRNA that I was working with, like she wasn't in the room for whatever reason, cause I was with him doing it. So she didn't really need to be. But then I was like, I don't know what to do because he, I know what he's doing is what he should be doing. And I'm like, this patient is not happy. Yeah, yeah. It's scary. Ugh. Awaken to patients. That's I've seen a few over the years. Yeah. Um, I know our lovely ENT patients. Those were always, <laughs> mm. or where they shove the airway or airway exchanger down their throat and just extubate them and leave it there. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, here, sit there with this thing in your throat for a while. Yeah. Oh, um, have you, are there any patient stories or that have stayed with you over the years that 
either like all of my nursing career, all of your nursing or, or CRNA. (sighs) Yeah. You know, I always thought it was so funny, not funny, but, uh, ha ha funny, but just, (laughs) there was like the six months before I left UW that I swear I seen like in the, in the six years or whatever that I was there, it was like all these like things happened in like six months. It was just like, you know, like this guy, like whose PA pressures were like 160 over a hundred and, you know, just like all the, all these like crazy things. Um, I don't know. I think some of my most memorable nursing stories all happened there just because we just really, we really got to know some of those patients so much that Mm -hmm. it, um, you know, and, and there's some pretty tragic things that happen, you know, like, Oh my God. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, I don't know. I like one of the things I remember before I left there the most was like, I think I was, uh, you know, floating or whatever. And I got called to a code and it was out on one of the floors and it was actually the second code and called in like five minutes. So I think like whoever was charged that night was at the first code. And then I went to the second one and it was like a guy who, uh, a younger guy who I think he was on like one of the telly floor step down. He wasn't in the ICU. And um, I think he had had, if I remember, he had had like a heart transplant when he was fairly young, like maybe even a teenager or early twenties. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. So I was doing the med nurse role. And so I was right up by his head and like, you know, there's all this stuff going on and somebody's doing chest compressions. And, um, I, I, I was not looking at him. I was like doing whatever I was doing. And all of a sudden he started like talking to me, like read my name badge. And he was like, hi, Becky. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, so it was one of these situations that where every time they were doing compressions, they were like perfuming him enough that he was like awake and with it. So they hadn't intubated him yet because he kept waking up every time we were doing chest compressions. Um, And I was like, so I was like, oh, holy shit. And, you know, I was like, oh, hi, you know, like, and just kind of talking to him like, so you got some stuff going on right now. (laughs) There's a lot of people and and just kind of talking to him and telling him what's going on and like, you know, and just, I was talking to him and like literally just watched like his pupils blow and that was like, like, you know, they intubated him like pink frothy. Oh no. It was just like crazy though. Like I had never had anything like that happen and I'd never had heard anybody talk to me and call up my name while somebody was like doing chest compressions. <laughs> oh my God. So I was just like, I don't know. It was just like, so it was a little bit traumatizing. It was also like a little endearing, I guess, to kind of be there and like talk to him while this was going on. But it was just like, it was something I will never forget. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm like totally speechless. Um, for people out there that aren't in the medical world, he did not make it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he did not. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was something. And then, um, let me try to think of like a good, um, trying to think of something as, you know, that's the lovely thing about, I mean, I would say like when I was in school, there was just a lot, you know, we did a lot of, um, you know, I was part, uh, one of the, at the bigger hospital, we would do like the awake cranies and stuff that Mm -hmm. was always, uh, 
really interesting. Um, yeah. We had a big children's hospital there. So, so yeah, learning to take care of little tiny babies and preemies, like it's like, you just want to like shit your pants the whole time you're, and there they would, you know, we usually didn't go to the children's hospital till we were a little later in our training. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, oftentimes, sometimes we were like kind of counted as staff in certain situations if we stayed later or something Mm -hmm. like we would be in a room by ourselves and sometimes you had a little tiny three-week-old baby who was born two months early and getting their like guts put back in you know when they're born like yeah like when they're born with like their guts on the outside yeah put them in those like silo things and kind of have to return them so yeah but it's so scary. But, you know, I, so I would say like that to me is going from only, I mean, I pretty much consider children, anyone under the age of 25 and going from like where I came, like medical and, you know, mostly, you know, rarely did we have anybody like super young there. If they were young, they were a mess. Um, but yeah, going to taking care of like little kids and babies was it, I ended up loving it. I don't know if I'd want to do it ever. If we had a big children's hospital here, I would consider it because I enjoyed it. Like it's, it's kind of, and there they really, you know, it's a, they're used to doing kids all the time. Like the PACU's nurse are doing kids all the time. It's just mm-hmm. all kids. Um, so it's just really interesting to, you know, we let the parents come back for inductions, um, mm-hmm. till they were asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought it was really interesting. And I always like, you would take them like little chap, you know, pick out some chapstick to smear on the inside of their mask so it didn't smell like SIBO. <laughs> and then you'd get them back in the room and they'd like sometimes go crazy. But if you, you know, like when you do a mask induction with kids, like you do that because they can fall asleep just breathing in SIBO. So you just tell them to that's scream a, as loud as they want. That's the um, anesthetic, right? Or the Yeah, yeah. yeah. So SIBO fluorine, yeah. So like on adults, you can't do that. Uh, like you can, it only works on kids, but um, you know, then we don't have to put their IVs in while they're awake and stuff like that. So that's nice. Yeah. But well, it was so interesting, like to have somebody with like literally a one O E T tube that is thinner than a straw. And then you're having like the, sur- like when you're doing these belly cases and the surgeons are literally standing on top of you because a baby is so little that you're all all smushed around one another and then you have the drapes up and it's like these tubes are so little they'll just like kink at nothing you know and you're just they're so tiny you're like oh my god they're not getting in here they're not getting in (laughs) I feel like as you started to talk about working with little kids like I feel like I'm gonna shit my pants also just just the, (laughs) the they always used to tell us though the people that were used to working there they're like kids are really hard to kill they don't want to (laughs) die i feel like you have to be so vigilant now because about dosages and they're completely opposite of what you do yeah everything's in tiny tiny syringes yeah tb syringe you use tb syringes for everything yeah oh really yeah for things. Yeah. Well, not at all. I mean, as you know, as like, you know, as kids get a little older, most of them are the same size as you or I these days, or a lot of them kids are Mm -hmm. not always that little anymore. So, 
So yeah. there's them too. But yeah, like the really tiny ones, like taking care of them, it's just, that's like a whole different world. Wow. Can, oh, I, you said something I wanted to ask you about. Um, can we go back to a, like awake cranies? So yeah. basically, I mean, we've always, I've known that, you know, these this neurosurgeons want to have their patients awake and basically yeah. they have have their skull off and they're working on their brain so that they can yeah. figure out whatever how to fix whatever's wrong with them and so they have to and what corresponding part of the brain is working so they have the patients awake but what do the do they get like verset or something like how how do the patients um the ones that I did we use Presidex wow did it? <laughs> I hope I never have to be in that position. Yeah. Being awake. I think there's a lot, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Cause I don't do this part, but I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, pre-op like teaching and what to expect that goes on. Or at least I hope there is because, you know, like you, there's no guarantee. They, you, they might remember it. And unfortunately, I guess I, I w- never had the chance to like follow up with those patients because mm-hmm. during school, actually, they, we actually were supposed to every day try to round on our patients that were still in the hospital, just kind of to ask because like we did their anesthetic and to see how, you know, did they have a lot of pain? Do they remember anything type of things? And obviously in an awake cranny, you run the risk of like remembering things a little more, but mm-hmm. It's hard to say because, you know, like I, I've kind of learned that, you know, even with a very little bit of like even propofol or something, you know, it's enough that most people don't have a lot of memory of stuff, you know, like they could be awake and talking to you and, you know, and you see that with, cause in the ICU, you like, when you run people on propofol, it's such a low infusion, they can kind of be awake and like sort of with it, but they don't always like remember anything that happened. Right. Um, I had a, I had a procedure last week, uh, and I needed, I, it was moderate station. So I had a anesthesiologist put me out, you know, um, everything went fine. But, oh my God, I woke up, uh, I was just like, I feel so stinking good. I feel so good. <laughs> I mean, I know they gave me some Versed to get me, yeah. you know, relaxed and stuff. And then they gave yeah. me propofol and I'm pretty sure fentanyl um, yeah. as well. But um, yeah. And Ketorolac and yep. which was good as well. Love the um, Yeah. But um, shout out to that anesthesiologist. He was, he had a lot of experience under his belt, but he was, uh, yeah, he was like, I'll take care That's of why it's like, so that, I don't know. That's why it's, you know, like every day, no matter how many cases you do, you're just like, all right, you know, and people can be really nervous. And I think, I don't know, to me, I think that's where like years, years of being a nurse comes in. Like you're, you know, it's really like second nature to go meet somebody and kind of develop a rapport with them in like 30 seconds or less. Like you just, that's what you're used to doing. Um, and then we give them drugs and put them to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. And I was, I was totally nervous and, um, he just made me feel super taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could see how that could be really, really nice that interface with the patients like that. It is. And you just, you know, like really, you, you know, like 
you're going to do your best job to take care of every single one of them. And, you know, I, you know, like I always tell people like, you know, of course it's scary because you don't do this every day, but I do it like six times a day. So they have, I'm like, it would be weird if you weren't nervous going into surgery. Mm-hmm. Like if you came here today and you're like, yeah, I'm getting surgery. <laughs> that, would <be> way more weird. <laughs> that would be way more weird than anything. Do you ever have, um, patients you see, I mean, and you're like, uh, oh shoot. I don't think we can, I don't think I can, like, you know, when you go and you do your assessment on them and like for we, when you first meet them, are you ever like, oh, this is going to be sketchy or I don't think I can do this patient or anything like that. Um, like because of how maybe, sick they are, maybe or... how sick they are, maybe how bad their malampati. Am, am I saying that right? Yeah, malampati. Yeah. Um, no, I would say the only the only cases I can recall. I mean, we cancel cases for a multitude of reasons. You know, we do. We are not a trauma center, so nothing rarely do we have anything that's like, you know, a level one back to the OR, like we don't have that. Um, mm-hmm. We, I, this is the middle of Wisconsin. We don't have like um, shooting victims coming in every mm-hmm. night. Or, there, you know, there's a little bit of drugs, but it's not like the overdose situation in other cities I've lived in. Um, uh, the only ones I've actually canceled are doing, um, teas for like, um, or cardioversion. So like, um, we, it, cause we do those, they're just like a mat case or like a sedation, mm-hmm. um, similar to like, if you do an EGD mm-hmm. and a couple of times, like twice I went down there and they were like, either didn't have them on oxygen and their set was like 84 or something. You know what I mean? It's like, we probably shouldn't be like putting a probe down their throat. <laughs> Um, but yeah. otherwise, you know, and I would say like where I work now, that is what keeps me challenged a little bit is our, so the hospital system I work for has a, I mean, it's changing a little bit now, of course, but they had um, like, there's a surgery center. So in surgery centers, that's where they do all the healthy patients, right? Those are all the like, you know, young, healthy people. They're going home that day and we get everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, they're, you know, of course, if it's like a joint replacement or something that's very elective, um, you know, we would look, we would look at not doing that. But if it's stuff like a colon resection or, you know, stuff that is a little bit more like they do need to have it done in spite of everything else going on with them. So it, it is definitely challenging the patients we have sometimes. <laughs> But again, like that's the whole, you know, I mean, you go back, it's like, you know, you have control over everything you give that patient. So, mm-hmm. you know, we do, <clears throat> um, you know, and you, you can always default to an awake intubation or a ketamine, you know, so ketamine inductions, like, and that's, um, we, I've done two between school and work and, um, primarily they're done for tamponade, oh. uh, so you can, if you do a primary, like primarily ketamine, they will stay breathing. They will not stop breathing with ketamine. And then you can at least look in their airway to see then 
if you are able, you know, if you can even see their airway or would be able to intubate them. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to like an awake, awake intubation where you just like numb their vocal cords and stuff. Yeah. So there's like ways to do it, but I mean, that's like, you always, you always have plan A, B, C, D and you know, those are always, and it's kind of, you know, and I would say like, so because, you know, because of the whole, like 99% of the time, it's like business as usual in anesthesia. It's like, I always find it, um, I really like it when I, uh, am like kind of challenged that way. And it's like all these things that you maybe during, during school, when all this information is getting shoved in your head and you're like, how am I going to remember all this? Like, this is too much. And then like one day it happens and you're like, I know exactly what to do. Like, it's just kind of like amazing that, you know, it's embedded in your brain somewhere, even if you don't remember that <laughs> Yeah, I always you're like, oh, I got this. I know this. This was like a board question. <laughs> I'm just gonna say for the, and I know we do have some lay people that listen to the show. Um, <clears throat> you know the job that Becky does, and uh, you know, uh, essentially she's p- making people stop breathing and then putting a tube down their throat and and then hooking them up to. And that's one of the things that you do, but like hooking them up to a ventilator or, or, um, but like some of those moments for me, I've seen a thousand intubations and Mm -hmm. I've definitely had some, I'm going to shit my pants uh, scenarios. Cause the, you know, once you paralyze them and once you, there's like no turning back. Yep. Um, Yeah. I just, the, the level of intensity, do you do, like, do you remember your first intubation? You probably yeah. do. <laughs> yep. They were just like, here you go. <laughs> wow. And again, and it was like not a young, healthy person with a good airway at all. <laughs> it was like an 80 year old smoker who was like morbidly obese. <laughs> Oh shit. That's not good. That's scary. That's really scary. Yeah. yeah. That They're is just so like, scary. Here you go. Here you go. No. And that's, you know, that's another thing about like the different, you know, like from when you see intubations in the, in the ICU, it's like, you know, rarely is it a very controlled situation, you know, and usually they're like so sick, you can't get their, like, you know, their oxygen saturation, like their arterial oxygen saturation, like up if you wanted to. Yeah. So like, it's just, and you really like in, and ICU beds are not good for positioning anybody ever. So, so there's just like a big difference, you know, when we bring them back to the OR, like we can, you know, ramp them up, you know, kind of prop them up and get things a little bit more controlled and there is, you know, and then there is, you know, ways to, you know, not, just like knock them out with propofol and paralyze them. There's like, if you truly are worried and, you know, on occasion you do have somebody that everything looks good and then it doesn't, you know, like it's, so you, you just never know, but they have, you know, we always have in the ORs, we have like all our stuff there that we need. And, you know, everybody has a emergency airway cart, of course. And it's good. Yeah. Cause when you need it, you need it when you need it, you need it. You always like, hope you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, what 
I'm probably going to wrap this up in a minute, but I want to know what is getting you through? Like, how are you surviving out there? Like, are you in the COVID situation? Just in general and yeah, life life right now during the pandemic. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. So, uh, I mean, if you remember, I like to travel. I, (laughs) (laughs) I, one of the reasons I did, you know, was interested in this my like in my rural area like uh, you know there is an airport here and you know like usually rural areas you your income's a little higher living is cheaper and a little more vacation so in the in in my mind you know I have like this time where I don't even have like I don't have to use my vacation to go visit my family because they live here so I have all this vacation and go anywhere I want in the world and I can't go anywhere I want in the world. I actually like oddly enough literally as COVID was I went to Australia with my good friend in the end of January I think it was it which it totally does not feel like it was less than a year ago it feels like it was a lifetime ago wow but things were it was so things were just starting there when we were in Australia they were um stopping flights from uh like Southeast Asia coming into Australia and they were starting screening at the airport. And I think that was actually either while we were there right after we got home was when they had the first positive patient in Washington mm-hmm. there. That's so it was, it was kind of amazing how things went. Like I got home and everything went <laughs> and um, shutting down. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, the nice thing about living not in a city is that there's a lot of places to easily get out of your house and not be surrounded by people here. Um, I have like, you know, a few friends that, you know, and I, I have a big house and a deck and everything. So you can social distance in my house, actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> So I do, I do have a few friends I see on occasion, but they're all, you know, my friends are all, they're very, they're very careful and work either from home or, and none of them have any small children or elderly parents like to take anything home to. So, um, I walk my dogs a lot. (laughs) So you have one dog right there. Yeah. Uh, what was it, Mavis? This is Mavis, yeah. And then I have Lola. She's a rescue, like a pity mix. And she's at daycare today because she loves doggy daycare. Aww. Mavis does not love doggy daycare. Mavis likes being with her mom. So, <laughs> so Mavis runs errands with me and hangs. Like, we usually go for a walk. Like, there's, there's a nice day park in town. She likes the dog park. So we do stuff like that. Then I don't, because ha- they're not well-behaved enough to take both of them like anywhere I have to like walk them separately and stuff like that. So, so her sister goes to daycare. <laughs> hey, have you heard anything about, are you getting a vaccine anytime soon? I hear that I have not heard for certain, but I heard that we were high on the list of places to be getting them uh, right away. And I don't know how many our area is getting and like I'm all for getting it my only personal feelings are that are like everybody who's like literally working on the front lines should get them before me is like my if I have to wait like a month or two like I'm Mm -hmm. okay with that because 
I don't have to take care of these patients every day. So mm-hmm. I just like, like make sure all the bedside nurses and staff are getting them before me is kind of my feelings. It's nice view, obviously. Uh, we, I heard before the end of the year, but like, we're quickly approaching that. So yeah, well, we're waiting for the, I haven't heard, like I had the news on this morning, they're waiting for, you know, like it went through the committee hearings, but they're waiting for official FDA approval before this like large disbursement, like happens mm-hmm. overnight pretty much. So, yeah. so uh, as of this morning, they hadn't yet. So I'm not sure. Once you're fully vaccinated, where are you yeah. going to go? Where are you going to travel to? I don't know yet. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm not leaving the country anytime soon. I did take some time off in February. I'm not afraid to fly. Like I, you know, like I'll wear my N95. Like yeah. I'm okay with that. I will quarantine as needed. And just like, if I can even just go somewhere that is not as cold as Wisconsin or just like, I'm not going to go anywhere populate. I don't have like a place. Like I just yeah. the middle of like Arizona or New Mexico or something. Like that. Give me some sunshine. Like, yeah. Just like a little, just a little bit. Cause that's like to, to not have gone anywhere for like a whole year is like, I mean, even driving, like, it's crazy. Like I haven't even hardly left the town I live in. <laughs> Isn't it weird? That's so weird. Yeah. It is. And it's like, I'm like, I feel like I was talking to one of my friends about this one day. I'm like, I'm almost like worried that this is one day this will end. And I'll be like, I can't like, you'll just be like a shut in at that. Like your mentality will have like switched to where you're like, I can't go around people. (laughs) Right. Totally. Oh my God. Yeah. But no, I, at this point I will go anywhere, but yeah, I, I do like long plane rides, probably time to, if I can get on a plane and go across an ocean and it's probably time to go like East again and go to like Europe or something. So I think my last two trips were like the Philippines and Australia, like my big trips. So, Oh God, that sounds so good. Yeah. I too love to travel and it's just, it's, I think the last flight I took was in February. Yeah, I remember I I took like a, you know, I flew down to California to help my friend. Oh, okay. Pack up some stuff and then drive, drive up to Seattle. But I remember then it was, it was feeling a little. Yeah. Risky, but um, man, I can't wait though. I, I, um, (laughs) I can't wait. We're, we're supposed to get the vaccine in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, we here too. Like that will be on the first, but like, yeah. And I, if they have enough for everybody in our whole hospital, that's great. Like I'll get it. And I haven't heard any, do they, do you know, um, cause this is like, there's a second part required to like mm-hmm. the Pfizer one. Mm-hmm. Does that all come all together or does that second part go out at a later date? Uh, well you get it 21 days after. Right. I but are think- they getting all of that right now? Or is there like another shipment? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm just speculating here, but it would be kind of dumb not to send them both together because it seems that way, but then play it like places have to be able to store them. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, cause the yeah. Pfizer one, you it has to be so cold. We have I was curious storage. about that. Cause I'm like, well, yeah, 
it just seemed like, well, are they going to send the other part out later? I wasn't sure. Cause that's a, I think, is it um, up to like, so from your first date, and then if you get your second one, like six weeks till you should be considered or consider yourself having antibodies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That part, I don't know. Um, I heard something like 10 days, but that's, that's probably. I think you need, oh, ap- after your after second, second one. Yeah. 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 Maybe it's something like that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure on the second one either, but yeah, that's what we hear. So I guess like they think the FDA approval come, you know, any time now, and that's all they're waiting for to like send these, like all these planes and uh, FedEx vehicles like out. So they have, yeah. I, I'm right. I don't know. It's kind of weird though. Like, I feel like even if they do, like, even if I, you know, when, when I'm vaccinated, I don't know that any, I feel like I have another year of all, you know, like this isn't going to change anything for at least a year. Absolutely. If some of these douchebags get on board with like getting a back, you know, I mean, there's a large number of people that need to be vaccinated before like we can even consider that we're like, you know, rounding the, rounding the top of the cliff, I guess, you know, I know, I know. Uh, I wish we could vaccinate the people that don't believe this is true because they're the one doing the most damage. It's like, yeah, I'm going to, they have, and I, yeah, I'm sure you've seen, you know, and I've seen like my, I've known a couple of like younger people who have had, like my niece had it. Um, she's 24. She works in like retail though. So, I mean, she was, but like, re- like she works at like a cell phone store. So they were actually were considered essential um, in the big, so like this whole time. So they never closed or did anything like that. They obviously had uh, protocols they were following and stuff, but she doesn't, and she doesn't really like go out or do anything. She's, she's more of an old person than I am. I always tell her, but <laughs> yeah, she did, uh, she did get COVID and she was, she was at my house like the day before. Cause she, when I'm on call, she'll come stay with me and help with the dogs in case I'm stuck at work all the time. Um, so then I did have to quarantine, but I was never positive and she, she was fine, but she still says like her, you know, like her taste and smell is off. Mm. I have a friend who, you know, mid forties, previously perfectly healthy and had some crazy, like weird neurological problems. Like he thought he was starting to feel better. And then he got like, it was like, like Parkinson's like shakes, um, like, you know, couldn't sign his name even shaking so bad. Uh, felt like he had a sunburn all over his body, um, some cognitive issues, like his taste and smell is like so changed that like he eats completely differently now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I think some of those, some of those symptoms have been, you know, improving, but whether they'll go away um, you know, I had a, like an old classmate of mine who same age and she's like way healthier than I am, you know, had it, I think sometime over summer and can't, you know, it's still hard for, she has like three, you know, fairly young kids, like under 10 ish or so, um, you know, and it's hard to like play catch with them even like, cause her lungs are probably scarred for the rest of her life. <laughs> Damn. 
Yeah. So it's just like, I just don't understand like, or, you know, even the other day I was just like thinking, cause so we had that or the U S death toll, like, you know, it was like greater than that of like nine 11 the other day. Mm-hmm. So I was like, so why, you know, how are all these fucking morons, you know, the, like, I'm just going to go ahead and call them like Trumpsters because mm-hmm. <laughs> we know, we know like how, how do they, you know, be so, you know, you know, I'm, you Patriotic. know, it's like, you know, like, you know, when 9-11 happened, like, well, we're going to go get him. We're going to do this, you know, like, you know, all this stuff. But then when, uh, when it's a virus that's killing as many people, like we don't have the same mentality about it. Like I was like, in my mind, I was thinking that like, how do they justify that? Like, you know, they were so, you know, willing to do so much because of an act of terrorism, but like, you know, because it's a virus, they just keep saying like, they're taking our rights away and businesses are shutting down. You know what I mean? Like, I know, you know, back in the day when they went to war, they did shut all the factories down. Everybody had to go give everything, every piece of steel they had to go making like, you know, stuff for the war. Right. It's like that. I just don't get the mentality. I don't get the, like, I don't know if it's that they, you know, I know people who have had it also much like our, you know, current president who have had it and recovered and didn't have any like lasting symptoms. So no big deal. It's fine. You know, I know. And the thing is they don't understand. And I don't know why it is but they don't. Why do people have to see somebody firsthand actually die of COVID to believe that it's real. Yeah. Like that. It I just, has a potential I don't even, some of them are so stupid though. I just don't even know if they would, they would, you know, if it was somebody who was older, they would be like, well, it's cause they had all these other problems. You know what I mean? Like, cause I think it's, you know, for a while, I have a friend who, um, you know, works with like death certificates and stuff. And, you know, she had even said like for a while, it was sometimes, um, you know, they don't always list like the cause of death is, COVID that's not always like you know even if they were positive and you know that's because they died of multi-system organ you know what I mean like mm-hmm. that's not listed as like the cause of death often which I find is like but we all know like <laughs> that's so weird I know huh so I don't know if that's like uh specifically where she works type of thing or yeah. you know if that's something that's being because really like you don't you know if unless like usually they are dying from something else right it's like you know mul- organ failure of some kind or ards or yeah, whatever they want to call you know but it's interest like the symptoms that come with it are like that's like the scary part right like you had like this, you know, all these like weird neurological and like, you know, like the blood pressure fluctuations and the coagulopathy and like, it's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, you can get a, just drop, I mean, you obviously heard about it, but like people can just drop dead of a PE or. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think for a while, um, yeah. Who was I talking about that with for a while, they were seeing a lot of PEs and people who were recovering. And I think now, I don't know this for sure, but I think now like they're getting put on Lovenox to go home with like those that were maybe hospitalized on heparin and 
need to go, you know, they're not just being, cause like how, so how long are you coagulopathic for? Like what the, what is what going the on? Hell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and some people are getting chronic fatigue. They're getting alopecia, yeah. like, yeah, um, there's so, I don't know. I mean, in the future, we're going to be able to easily identify, Oh yeah, that was a person who had probably COVID, you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, because it's almost yeah. like if, if I, I, I don't know. It feels like they're, they're going to be vets of this um, yeah. pandemic, yeah. essentially, like yeah. rolling around. What is your, so I have a question for you. What is your, because, because I don't work at the bedside anymore, really. Like, what is your opinion about, um, you know, like, you know, maybe that, like how many people are going to be leaving bedside nursing because of this? Like how, how fed up with their, how bad is the trauma going to be to them? How bad is, you know, like, they're just like, you know, right now, what are they supposed to do? They have like, I don't think any nurse is going to like walk. I don't know many, many nurses that would be like, I'm leaving in the middle of a pandemic. Cause I just can't handle, you know, most nurses are just going to like, this is my job. This is what I do. You know, no matter how awful it is every night and feel like you're going to war every night and but I just feel like it's lit like they're gonna, I feel like it was gonna be, it's gonna be very traumatic for them, especially people who were working on, you know, COVID units where, or these hospitals where they're, you know, having to put patients out in like the parking lot and yeah. stuff like this. I mean, I think they're, and I'll just, we, they well, are gonna be forever scarred. I think, yeah. um, you know, talking to, so of our, for us personally, we took care of the first COVID patients on my unit and then yeah. we moved them over to this, our surgical ICU and converted it into this. Oh, so like the old five East. Old five East kind of converted into a, a COVID ICU overnight. And I feel like, um, those nurses are traumatized. Oh um, my God. Because so then, did they keep the surgical staff? That yeah. was there. Yeah. That was like, okay. And then so they you, were now used to surgery patients and had to go wait. It was like working on five East. <laughs> yeah. I mean, essentially they went from a very, I mean, some of their patients can be very sick, but they yeah. had a lot yeah. of lower acuity patients to all of a sudden a flip of the switch to taking care of the sickest of the sick. Not and they didn't know what to do with them at that and, point. Yeah. And yeah. they, and they, you know, the public out there doesn't believe this. Some of the public doesn't believe this is true, but there were a lot of young patients there with no comor comorbidities who were yeah. dying. Um, and like, I just feel like anyway, I, I feel like that they're permanently scarred from that. And I think, and um, I think we have a lot of work to do. Um, I don't think as a, like, as a healthcare profession, we have a lot of work to do. Like nurses, we need, um, we can't yeah. sweep this under the rug. You know, I don't know how this is going to, um, affect us long-term. I do imagine people will leave. I feel like people are going to ride it out for the pandemic. And then when this is over, then they're going to say, yeah. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was actually, when I listened to, was it last week or the week before when Maria mm -hmm. was on and mm -hmm. talked, so she has kind of a role in being like a support person through mm -hmm. COVID now, which is great, but not a lot of hospitals even have something like, you know, like they're like, sorry, can you work an extra shift today? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I think these poor, uh, these poor states where they're just getting slaughtered. Yeah. And they don't have enough staff. And yeah. I, yeah. Like, like South or North Dakota was so bad. And I would guarantee most of their hospitals don't have any, you know, any like rural hospitals don't just generally have those, you know, type of roles really where you have like, you know, nurse educators, you know, or, right. you know, ones that are advanced practice, like a nurse educator type of thing. And yeah, but it's like such an important thing just to be like, so how is everybody doing today? You know, and yeah, right. And or how they're, how they're worrying about people's like mental health compared to just like taking care of these patients. Cause like, I know our nurse, like to me, I just feel like we don't at our, at the hospital I work at, I don't, think they have enough people you know they make it work because that's what nurses do but like I like I literally walk out there and I think like I'm just like oh my god like that's just like what goes through my head I'm just like like I just can't imagine I just can't imagine yeah and then, like I I work at a small hospital where you know we have like I said we like try to ship out like some of the sicker patients because we don't really have a great way to uh take care of them at night always and I'm like, I can't imagine going somewhere where like, you know, they have like 30 intubated COVID patients, like, like, oh my God. Yeah. And then they're just there for so long. They're just like yeah. stuck. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of them are getting like, tra- if they get better, they get traped and still have a lot of recovery. And then there's like people who are having, it's almost like a paralysis afterwards. Like I've heard. And wow. It's like, oh my God. I know. I mean, if you, if God forbid you get that sick, like life, quality of life after that. I mean, there, we have this. I know. Of- I was always the person, to, I think after working on 5 East, I was like <laughs> totally convinced. I'm like, if they ever talk about a trach or a peg, you just tell them to forget. <laughs> it's like, I don't need any of that stuff. No, 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 no. I'm like, I don't care how old I am. I, I can tell you my will is not that strong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, man, we've been talking for a long time. I don't want to keep you. It's been so good, though, yeah, to yeah. chat. Yeah. Um, any yeah, last, thanks, Nicole. Any last thoughts for um, the listeners out there? No, I just hope everybody continues to stay safe. It's like, I don't know, it's something I think on my mind and everybody's mind every day, especially when you're in healthcare. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I have like survivor's guilt because I don't work on the floor anymore. <laughs> like when I see that, it, you know, when I see like yeah. uh, what people are doing, I'm just like, oh my gosh. And I just like, I, I hats off to all of you that are still working at the bedside because I just can't imagine what it's like right now. I feel... I feel very lucky that I'm not, that I can say that I'm that removed from it. I, not completely removed, but I, you know, I, I know it's totally different being at the bedside every day. Well, I know a lot of people actually have that feeling of a little bit of that survivor's guilt, like, you know, not being, but, but I mean, but you've done your time and you've done uh, you know I yeah I have, a very I have. I, like my heart just goes out when I see that what they're doing like it's just like my heart just sinks like just knowing exactly like how you know 
how bad that must feel to like yeah. do that every single day. I know. And you just have to take, you just really have to take care of yourself yeah. and, and dig in deep to your mental health and make connections with people, reach out. I mean, yeah. this is the time uh, to, to do that. So that's mm-hmm. really sweet, Becky. You're- yeah. Well, it was really nice talking to you, Nicole. Say yeah. hello to everybody. I yeah. miss you so much. One day I'll travel there again when I yeah. can get up. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I know there's a lovely Seattle sky in the background. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I know you're, um, I know Kat, I'm sure will listen to this and your old friends. So, uh, so good to see you. I hope that I can make your, make it your way someday. And, uh, yeah. I always um, recommend the summer. Okay. <laughs> Not the winter. Thank yeah. you for everything. Um, and uh, yeah, stay safe and stay sane. Yeah, you as well. Take care, Nicole. Okay. We'll see ya. See ya on the All next right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.